Welcome to a special live episode from Bird Note Presents. I'm Ashley Ahern. For those of you who started listening to this podcast as SoundScape subscribers, heads up that this episode sounds a bit different from that production, and there are parts that may make some listeners uncomfortable. Dr. J. Drew Lanham is a BirdNote board member, a poet, and a professor of wildlife ecology at Clemson University. He's also the author of Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature. Drew and I spoke before a live audience at the University of Washington's Symposium on Nature and Health. The conversation wove through his poetry, readings from his memoir, and his thoughts about nature, faith, climate change, the loss of birds, and the ways we can work together to confront systemic racism. I hope you enjoy it. So I want to start with the home place. Let's mm-hmm. start, start with your roots. Sure. Um, it's a beautiful, the way you describe the place is um, so powerful. And I wanted actually to kick it off. It's clear it's influenced you and who you've become as a scientist and a man. And um, I wondered if you could read that section on page 17 about describing the home place and then tell us a little bit about it. Sure. An April morning full of bird song and the distant rumblings of gobbling longbeards was life in stereo. Bob White quail had conversations with one another from weedy ditches and thorny thickets. On my rambles, I would usually flush a covey or two. The birds exploded from blackberry brambles, flying scattershot in every direction with wings a whirring to find refuge elsewhere. The sudden flurry never failed to push my pulse to pounding. Within a few minutes, the reassembly calls of Pierly, Pierly, drifted across the pasture to bring the clan back together again. On warm summer nights, barred owls boomed their eerie calls and cackles back and forth across the creek bottom as the numbing chants of whippoorwills and choruses of katydids and crickets lulled me to sleep. So yeah, that's, um, that was sort of my life, you know? Um, and it, it, it was an idol in many ways for me. And it was a life that was oriented towards the seasons because my family grew up on this farm uh, in the middle of the Sumter National Forest in Edgefield County. Most of you won't know Edgefield County um, alone, but it's sort of infamous because first of all, it's a small county in the western Piedmont that was home to 10 governors of the state of South Carolina. Now, what does that have to do with any of you? Um, The money came from the planter class in Charleston. The politics came out of Edgefield. Strom Thurmond came out of Edgefield. So that gives you any indication that your lives have all been impacted by my home place. so I, you know, Ashley, the, the, the bird stories for me are sort of that, that genesis for understanding a place I love ecologically and for family. Pretty much despise it politically, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the, the, the birds, the quail, um, the whippoorwills, the barred owls, all of those are things that bring me back to a place of, of comfort and really sort of acceptance because the birds never refused my adoration because of who I was. 
I love the images of you as a young man running through those woods and, and basically becoming a scientist before you maybe even realized that's what you were doing. You were embracing your curiosity about this place. Yeah, I, you know, that curiosity. Um, curiosity is job security for a scientist, right? Uh, you know, I mean, Journalists really. too. <laughs> yeah, I, that next question for storytellers. I mean, we ought to want to be led not just to responses or answers, but to the next question. So as a kid, it was, you know, the next corner to be turned. Where was the next covey of quail? What was that bird that I heard? Um, what's the new bird that I just saw? You know, in the creeks, you, you wanted to know what was underneath that, that water. And so, yeah, it was sort of this, this fascination, first with feathers, but then with everything else that led to this sort of constant multiple hypothesis testing, as it were. And that's, that's really, I think, for, for those of us who call science our, our lives and our careers, that's all that we do really. Life is just constant multiple um, hypothesis testing. So you wrote, I, I, there's a chapter in your book where you describe each of your siblings as a, as a bird. And yeah. I, I liked the passage you read about yourself. You said, I'm the hermit thrush of the flock, <laughs> a brown-backed shadow hugger who prefers the world's darker, quieter recesses with an occasional foray into the light. I'm no singer, but I sling words every now and again to express what my heart feels. Hmm. You're a poet as well, and I, I had asked if maybe you had anything you would, could share with us today that you're working on. I do. Um... And, you know, I've been, working, I've been working this poem for a while, and, and just as some background, I, I try to, to bring poetry forward um, in ways that will inform the common um, and inform what's going on. So for me, the news on a daily basis might lead to poems. And so if you remember some of the conversations that were being had a few weeks ago and the word lynching, came up. And so um, that sort of spurred me on, and I've, I've been working on this, and it's, um, it's called For Lindsay. Looking skyward, squinting through leaves, filtering June sun through new green, trying to pin names on singing birds above, I sometimes wonder whether there are trees here that someone might hang me from. Whether these were forests where guttural moans echoed off hollowed bald cypress, where sobbing cries for mercy fell soft on sodden litter carpeted ground, where maybe, hopefully, final defiant hell-sending curses flew from the mouths of those God himself abandoned, tamped down barred owls' dusk-hooting refrains. I ponder between spells of warbler identification in the midst of sorting one chip note from the other, parsing hooded soft pips for more emphatic sips of black-throated blues, what drove the sylvan selection of a lynch mob, the macabre forest crews to choose the species from which offending Negroes might swing. Billy's poplars bore strange fruit. She sang the words that Maripole wrote. Was his lyric her croon and ode to Knight Rider clansman preference for young Liriodendron tulipifera? A tulip tree still short enough to sling up a noose, or maybe it was lyrical reporting on racist vigilante preferences for eastern cottonwood. Rapidly sprouting, clonally prolific, 
P. deltoides, quick growing whips pioneering on some slow muddy river oxbow growing lynch branch thick. I do know that a loblolly or longleaf, teta or palustris by specific epithet, would not likely do. The limbs grow too high to pull a struggling nigger up, far beyond sufficient never walk this earth again height. No need for overkill or inconvenience. The pinus kind are too tall for proper lynching, much too straight. No hemp hitching place on the sap weeping bowls that some endangered woodpecker might be inclined to excavate. Not even a scraggly nigger pine, that is the colloquial nomen, it's Virginia by Latinized name, would suffice. Too much nappy needle clutter to allow the rotting corpse to properly dance. A willow of any kind, even Salix nigra, or an eastern redbud, the so-called Judas tree my grandmother claimed Jesus' disciple ended his thrice before the cock crew denying life on, would be too weak, too brittle, too brash for all the kicking and thrashing of the colored, tortured, and condemned. In the interim of feather fascination, this odd wandering over trees becomes nagging obsession. I recall the lessons learned from textbooks, then apply them, expand them to fit my ethnically prismed quirks. It seems to me that an old live oak would better suit the grisly gatherings, the God-fearing throngs come together after church or family dinners of fried chicken and rice, to, white, to watch white mob injustices meted out by short-length twine. And don't just make it a men's only affair, bring the wife and children. That way the legacy gets passed on, generation to generation. You can see them all in the glow of kerosene lamps and fat knot torches, the coarse line tossed gleefully over low-slung limbs to stretch black necks and tortured, choking death. Quercus virginiana, reaches gargantuan proportions in open-grown situations, commonly cultured in small-town parks, gracefully drooped, Spanish moss-draped antebellum arms, elephantine themselves along genteel plantation avenues, where in the good old days, people knew their rightful places. These giants make perfect stages to string up innocence, to set the order right, a great again reset, make good on master race promises, the superior quality of any quirkus tightly grain wood, strong enough to mass sailing ships and provide endless supplies of strange fruit carcasses, stout enough to bear so much hate as to strangle railroaded black men pulled at midnight from conveniently left open jail cells, stout enough to kill black women rumored to utter disrespectful crosswords when they were silent all along stout enough to murder black children that never whistled at white women who claimed by bold-faced lies they did. How would the discerning racist choose from so much lethal standing timber? Forgive me, Mr. Frost, but the woods are not always lovely. They may indeed be too dark for some, too deep for others, stands of trees snagging memories like so much human flotsam, or straining bloated black bodies from sluggish streams, swollen and beaten to unrecognizable, closed casket status means generations of weeping. Back and forth my mind and heart flow between birds I see and hanging trees. I'm told I shouldn't let such things go. It's history far gone into the past, but then I can't. Horror sets up in my annual rings, 
grow season by season unseen beneath my skin in my brain under the bark rough and smooth that seals the screams in soul and sapwood. Most to go deaf, blind, or dumb past it through hardwood and conifer, seek solace unquestioning beneath the stained canopies. The forests witness the now invisible grown over by unspoken truth, remembered in leaves still nourished from blood-soaked roots. And so my dendrology succeeds upon itself, grows in nightmarish tangles from old field beatings to old growth pendulant deaths. The odd wondering on hanging trees, their lynching habits, and whether I might become Billie Holiday's fresh harvest is a haunting thing. A personal ecology born of fear, a botany thicketed in pain. So Lindsay, Thank you. So, um, you know, words are, words are important, right? <laughs> um, they, um, where, where we decide to take a word and uh, apply it, um, either rightfully or wrongly. And um, so, you know, what I've written in the home place, um, I hope is meaningful but the words that are spoken on a daily basis are what inspire many of them. I was really struck by the line about frost and how the woods are not lovely for everyone. And I, because it calls out the privilege that I have, that I, the woods are lovely for me, and I think the woods are probably lovely for many of the people in this room who can walk the earth without thinking of that history, that don't share that history that you right. wrote so beautifully about. And I, I would love to hear your thoughts about how do we incorporate that history? Because we know we can't forget it, and we mm -hmm. must not forget it, but, but make the woods a lovely place for the next generation of young scientists of color, naturalists of color, so that that space can be embraced. Yeah, I, you know, that, that question of barriers, you know, which is, I mean, ever-present, right? You know, we're building walls, we're, um, we're making all kinds of ways to sort of pigeonhole ourselves, but I, I think it, it first actually starts with some introspection. You know, I, I tell my students in policy class that all policy begins with personal agenda. So first looking inward to think about how we think about nature. And then, for example, before we tell someone, oh, all you gotta do is go over in this neighborhood to see this bird, just take your bin, sit in the car and watch, right? Or all you gotta do is walk through this neighborhood to get to this place. And you know, that's, that may be my perspective, my familiarity that others do not have. And so first checking yourself. And, and that's, a, that's a huge exercise, that's a huge barrier. So the internal barriers are important, not just from, from those trying to open doors, but those trying to, to come in or to push them down. And so understanding and saying, if you're fearful, being open to that, being vulnerable to that. So vulnerability is this, this two-way street. It's a, more than a four-way stop, right? So um, that's a barrier. You know, institutionally, we have all these things that sort of lie in front of us that, that, that quite frankly, we haven't taken the time, as I was just speaking to a friend, to Carter, about um, that, that Band-Aids have been placed on. And so, if, for example, we see people of color in a room or a person of color 
on a board than making the assumption that the box has been checked off. Well, I mean, that's a Band-Aid, right? So, so ultimately, Band-Aids, um, in order for wounds to heal, they have to breathe. So this exposure is painful. And we as a society, I mean, who likes that, right? Yeah. Who, who really likes that? Do you think I really like writing about lynching? I'd, rather, I'd much rather write about birds and how I only have to pay attention to the field marks and not to the Confederate battle flag that I passed up the road. Or did their look really linger on me? So those, those are barriers, I think, um, and the assumptions that, that we have. So ripping off those Band-Aids one by one um, and understanding that the wounds have to be exposed before they heal. And then that healing begins from within. You know, if you assume a wound heals from the surface down, there's infection underneath. So what we're going through now, society, I think, um, with, 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 with different movements and thinking about Black Lives Matter and thinking about Me Too and thinking about these things, that every incident is a wound exposed. So, you know, I think in this, in this current context, you know, politically and otherwise, that there are opportunities to make headway where wounds are exposed. And we have to do that personally, and we have to do that organizationally. And we have to understand and be aware of the pain that, that can come. I mean, but we're conservationists, environmentalists, and we want to go out and we want to love nature and see the beauty in it. And, and that's one of the, the things about our current age. You know, we think about this, the Anthropocene, and we think about all that the Anthropocene means, and that this, it's the age of destruction and selfishness. But there's still beauty to be had. There's still this beauty. And, and so I, I, I'm not saying that we dismiss the beauty, that we not have that curiosity to see what's around the next corner, um, but that we understand that the corner isn't the same for everyone. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Um, you're making me think of the recent study in science, speaking of the Anthropocene and what mm. we're facing, um, that pointed out that um, you know, the number of birds in the US and Canada has declined by 3 billion, 29% since 1970. I want to ask you as a scientist, but also as a human living in the Anthropocene, what do you do with information like that? How do you process it in your heart as well as your head? Wow. Um, you know, it's, uh, th those numbers are, are likely conservative numbers. And, um, you know, sort of on a daily basis, what we see, you know, in the stories that, that we can begin to compile, the data set that we compile, how many birds, how many robins, how many varied thrushes, how many uh, birds are, are, are we seeing? And, and, and some of us can say, well, you know what, I'm just not seeing those birds. Even without having access eBird or Christmas bird counts or any breeding bird censuses. So, you know, getting your head around those numbers is difficult. Billions, right? But then what, what you're seeing in your space, in your places, are you still hearing the same, seeing the same? But I would also offer, are you feeling the same? Because you can feel birds. 
you know, I mean, and I think about them and, I, and it's an emotional thing for me. I mean, I think about quail. I grew up with quail, right? I didn't grow up hunting quail. I just grew up having them scare the hell out of me when they popped up out of places where I didn't expect them. And now, man, it's hard to find, back home, it's hard to find quail. You know, to hear that, that whistle, that You don't hear that. And so the last quail that, that I saw was this, this lone male, this, this bird this, that was calling. And it was calling from this weedy ditch along this unkempt uh, fence line textbook for quail. And it was doing that call, right? And um, I call back. And this bird hops up on a fence post. cocks its head and begins and throws its head back and does the whole thing. And I'm sitting there and man, it was so emotional for me. But those are birds that have declined to um, really threaten status in some places, but that are tied tightly to culture and to small farms and to um, 40 acres and a mule. And so that decline I feel. You know, I feel it as much as I could count those birds or hear those birds. So you feel absence, just as you would feel the absence of a lover or a friend. You feel the absence of birds. So pay attention to that. And then you write to that feeling. It's backed up by the data, <laughs> by the way. You write to that feeling. And when you can write to the absence of a bird that you know, not lists of birds, not life lists, not that sort of selfish, well, I won't call it a selfish act, but that act of listing as many birds as you can see, but that one bird, when you can write to that, speak to that, then that, those billions become the possibility for Martha the passenger pigeon or Incas the Carolina parakeet or Booming Ben the last heath hen. I mean, we don't wanna get down to single birds with names. Early in your academic career, you were going to be an engineer. <laughs> I think that's awesome, and I really want to know where the 180 came and how. And for folks in this room, maybe early career scientists or anybody who's early in their career, do you have any advice? Uh, follow your heart. I mean, now, I'm not disparaging engineers at all. My gosh, look at this beautiful building. <laughs> You know, there are forces and moments and cantilevers you don't want to see <laughs> in action. You don't want dispassionate calculators of such things. <laughs> so um, the 180 occurred after three and a half years in mechanical engineering, doing fairly well, faking it for everybody's expectations of what a black kid who is good in math and science should do. He said, the birds you can do after work, but you're going to make a bunch of money as an engineer. Um, and, I, and I could have done it. I could have faked my way through it. But one day on the way to, to a class um, that I already skipped a lot of, um, one day on the way to this class, I, I just couldn't do it anymore. And it was, um, it was the edge of spring. Uh, 
there were some there were some birds singing, but it wasn't a bird that turned me around as much as it was just sort of this internal song of you cannot do this. So I stopped, went back to my room, got a huge bowl of cereal, uh, shut the blinds, watched cartoons for um, a day or two. I fell into a depression. Um, and 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 so, but that decision that. Um, 180 saved my life. It's the reason that I'm here now. And, and I'm thankful for that time. I don't regret that time. I used to say, man, if I had just been able to do this from the get-go, I would have been so much better. But I wouldn't. I, I think you have to, to, to try that, that stony ground, so to speak, so that you begin to understand what it feels like when you're on cool moss. Mm-hmm. So that you have some comparison, you can say, and I also learned you know, I also learned from that experience. So I'm, gr- I'm grateful for the time as an engineer, but I would tell people in their careers, listen to this. You know, um, it's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be accepted. Um, but this will validate you. Now, it'll, it'll lead you to some places of pain. Um, it'll rip off some of the bandages. Um, but it wasn't a logical decision at the time to give up sure money, sure job, um, a sure career, you know, maybe a gold watch or something like that one day. Um, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. I wanted to ask you about faith and conservation. Mm. You grew up in the Baptist <clears throat> church, and um, you wrote beautifully, though, about finding your own form of spirituality, which was not within the four walls of a hot South Carolina church. And I wanted to ask you to read on page 86, the passage that you wrote about. um, 86. Yeah, just from that first. Okay. Sunday always felt different, sometimes in good ways. I got to eat breakfast at the ranch and mama usually made grits and gravy or salmon patties. At Sunday meals, we said the Lord's Prayer arts, thou's, and not trespassing against rather than the abbreviated and efficient. God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. By his hands we shall be fed, give us, Lord, our daily bread. Amen. No, we read the Bible on Sunday mornings, a few verses to confirm the Sabbath. The Bible and biscuits were fine. Breakfast followed by some time wandering in wildness would have been perfect. Running out to contemplate the transformation of tadpoles or the dizzy, defying dances of whirligig beetles in some muddy puddle would have been worship enough in my mind. But on far too many Sundays, I was pulled from the roaming rhythm and natural worship that truly fulfilled me. A church Sunday meant that God was suddenly confined to something that seemed much less miraculous than the woods and fields where creation was so evident. Inside the church's walls, the wind didn't blow and Bob White quail didn't call, the hawks didn't soar and creeks didn't gurgle. Instead, I was supposed to find peace with pictures of a long-haired, fair-skinned Jesus staring at me and a man I didn't know hollering that the world would end if I didn't behave better. Even the ritual of donning the church uniform a stiffly starched shirt, a clip-on tie, and a fun-constraining, play-inhibiting, better-keep-it-clean, double-knit polyester suit of armor, along with the inflexible hard-soled shoes that wouldn't let me run away, led me to believe that God would only accept me on a very limited basis. Well-worn jeans and a whole riddle t-shirt weren't good enough for him. 
With the suits always too tight and the services always too long, God seemed somehow far, far away and not someone I really wanted to know. I'm curious, as we have more of the conversation around care for creation and hearing that phrase coming out of religious communities in the U.S. now, how you see that changing or what, your, what was your awareness of conservation or any sort of environmental message that would have had room in a church like the one you described growing up that you were desperately trying to escape <laughs> to be in nature? Well, wow. Um, you know, that uh, church was, so, was such um, a strong part, religion, uh, was such a strong part of my upbringing growing up with, with my grandmother for the most part that it was you know, this, this daily intermingling, really, of, of her very strong Baptist faith, but then these, this sort of otherworldly thing of her talking to ghosts at night and incantations and, um, and bringing nature inside with medicinal herbs and those sorts of things. So there was sort of this crossroads that where I existed, um, but, but then there was, there was always this sort of reversion to, um, to, to God was always watching, and that, um, that heaven was this faraway place that, that I had to wait on. And, and so I felt constrained in that, even as a, as a kid, that, that we had these church fans, you know, because the church had no air conditioning. And, um, and South Carolina is hot. And so you had these fans that they would pass out. And, and sometimes I'd get the fan with Jesus on it, uh, which I didn't like. Um, or the fan with Martin Luther King on it. Uh, but the fan that I liked had, there was a church, but it was surrounded by all this fall foliage. And so I wouldn't focus on the church, I would focus on the foliage. And I would wonder what was in those woods around that church. And occasionally they'd have the window up in the church and you could hear birds outside and that kind of thing. So. Um, for me, it, it, it seemed, and because we didn't go to church every Sunday, I had other Sundays to sort of wander. And so when we would go to church, I was resentful that I didn't have at least one more Sunday to roam. So I bring that, I fast forward that now. And, um, you know, I, I have from a personal sort of spiritual uh, identity message, I, I have problems with oppressed people adopting the God of their oppressors. I mean, that's just, I, I don't know. I, you know, philosophically, I'm, I'm not there. Not decrying anyone else's faith, but, but for me, I, I sort of came full circle to a creation, and, and creation is an evolved thing for me. Um, you know, I, I, every bird is sort of this god. Um, you know, there, there are many cathedrals or temples um, where I can worship, and I don't have to throw money in an offering basket, right? There's no cover charge for nature. So, you know, in that sense, um, I think that time in the church and understanding what God was not to me helped me understand what was important to me spiritually. So, you know, as I ran from that, I've sort of come back to this place of understanding just how important the place is for me as, how important nature is for me as a temple, as a place for me to, to get right with myself. Not necessarily 
<clears throat> that the greater than me is all of it. So, um, you know, th that's been a big deal because I, I was, I was kind of frightened a few months ago and I was doing a, a talk and doing a plenary and I hadn't seen the program and um, they show me the program, it's on my seat and it has, you know, the people that I'm on the panel with, there was someone from, uh, you know, this conservation organization and they were a CEO or this person and then it got to me and instead of saying I was a college professor or a wildlife ecologist, they called me a conservation evangelist. <laughs> and I didn't know how to get with that, right? I was like, uh, you know, it was there, it was printed. And, you know, I, I sort of felt some kind of way about it. <clears throat> and, and this is the first time I've sort of talked about this openly. But then I said, so what is that? You know, so I had to get out of my mind, like, all these televangelists, <laughs> you know, telling people they were going to hell. But call and pay $25. Right, right. <laughs> and, and so, you know, that's, that's the, the other thing. But I say all that to say I think that there's a mission. Um, personally, I, I feel compelled to share with people what my story is, but also how I think we can come together um, in some sort of way under some sort of gathered communion to do better by one another and by nature, you know? Um, and, and so whether we see God in birds or butterflies or boulders or one another, um, that that's a way to move forward. So yeah, I, you know, when every time I call an owl uh, now, it's something that I asked my grandmother's permission for because that was bad omen. And that was born of her spirituality. So, I, and actually I do it, <laughs> I find myself doing it less because I knew it would displease her, you know, to hoot. Um, and so all of that Baptist basis that bashed me, that they hope I guess would bash the hell out of me, who um, would literally um, has sort of come back in a way where um, I don't I, I, I don't call myself a religious person um, you know I go from atheist to Zen every day <laughs> and then back um, but there's room for all of that you know I don't think there's room for us to be excluding in this time that if we're going to be inclusive, we got to be inclusive. I wanted to end with one of my favorite passages of the book. It's on page 157. <clears throat> and this is, from, this is from a portion of the book called Flight, and it's called, um, the chapter is called Birding While Black. The wild things and places belong to all of us. So while I can't fix the bigger problems of race in the United States, can't suggest a means by which I and others like me will always feel safe, I can prescribe a solution in my own small corner. Get more people of color out there. Turn oddities into commonplace. The presence of more black birders, wildlife biologists, hunters, hikers, and fisher folk will say to others that we too appreciate the warble of a summer tanager. 
the incredible instincts of a white-tailed buck and the sound of wind in the tall pines. Our responsibility is to pass something on to those coming after. As young people of color reconnect with what so many of their ancestors knew, that our connections to the land run deep, like the tap roots of mighty oaks, that the land renews and sustains us, maybe things will begin to change. I'm hoping that soon a black birder won't be a rare sighting. I'm hoping that at some point I'll see color sprinkled throughout a birding festival crowd. I'm hoping for the day when young hotshot birders just happen to be black like me. These hopes brighten the darkness of past experiences. The present does too. What I've learned from all the years of looking for birds in far-flung places and expecting the worst from people in, is that my assumptions are more times than not unfounded. These nature-seeking souls are mostly kindred spirits out to find not just birds, but solace. A catalog of friends, most of them white, have inspired, guided, and sometimes even nurtured my passion for birds and nature. As we gaze together, everything that's different about us disappears into the plumages of the creatures we see beyond our binoculars. There is power in the shared pursuit of feathered things. Thank you so much, Dr. Lanham. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a special live recorded episode from Bird Note Presents. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to find out more or support our work, please go to birdnote.org.